What joy it is to worship together, digitally, in person, all to the glory of our God. We've been in the series in Romans 8 called Inseparable. And I hope week after week after week, you're hearing, not just with your ears, but in your hearts, God's love for each and every one of you. That God desires to know you and nothing can separate you from him. No sin, no action, nothing can separate those who are in Christ Jesus. And I hope that's what you get every week uh, in this series uh, titled The Greatest Chapter Ever Written. Romans 8, Inseparable, the Love of God. Today we're going to continue talking about God's inseparable love, but in a way that helps us think of the future as we think about what we are going through today uh, in our present lives. You know, in this past year, we've all had a little extra time uh, when, when we're not uh, kind of fearing or worrying about other things. We've had time for other recreational activities and reading as well. And if you have still margin and want to read a book, uh, a book that I've really enjoyed, a book that really has uh, impacted me, is called Unbroken, titled Unbroken. It's the story of Louis Zamperini. And if you don't know the book, highly recommend you can carve out some time to read the book. Uh, it's a great story. They also made a movie. And anytime you have a book and a movie, uh, I can tell you the book is always better because it tells the whole picture. Uh, but it follows Louis Zamperini, who is an Olympian who uh, completed, uh, competed in the Olympics. Uh, but he also served in World War II. And in World War II, he was shot down over the Pacific Ocean. And for 47 days, he floated on this little tiny raft with two others. One lost his life, but they floated for 47 days in the Pacific Ocean. And he talks about how uh, he could see the sharks circling them the entire time. After 47 days on open water, uh, he landed on land and became a POW for two additional years. And he talks about those two years, how almost every day they tortured him. Uh, they psychologically kind of manipulated him. And they kept saying that they were going to execute him, even if they were liberated, even if they were freed, uh, he would not get away, that they would execute him uh, before any of that would happen. Louis Zemperny, the title of the book is called Unbroken. But in it, he talks about how he had this, uh, it, through all the struggles, this irrational hope, irrational hope that one day he would see his family again in California. An author talks about him and he says that he had a hope for a future uh, free of the torments of the past or the present. So he did not give in to despair. See, more than resilience, more than grit, more than toughness, more than willpower, more than wishful thinking, it's hope that carries us forward. It's not a temperament or a thinking style. It is hope, something very deep in us. C.S. Lewis, a famous author, a theologian, a follower of Jesus, talks about hope in this way. He says, hope is a theological virtue, is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world uh, is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christian who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective 
in this. He talks about hope not as a virtue to carry us, but as actually is a tool and a mechanism that impacts the world that they live in today. And what Lewis is saying is that the hope found in Jesus moves us forward, but it doesn't lose sight of what is happening in the now. Hope drives us forward, but grounds us in our current context. And when we look at uh, Zamperini's story, uh, it looks like irrational hope for someone who's just flipping the pages. As we see his story and we get close to him, it does seem like irrational hope through all the suffering and pain and turmoil. But when we look, step back and see the whole story and we can see the whole scope of things, it comes nothing but, everything but irrational, but the very rational thing to do is to have hope. When we see the end of the story and we see how things unfold, it's hope what carries him and it becomes the most rational thing that he can have to carry him through every day of his struggles. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in Romans 8. See, Romans 8, in that first century context, there is persecution, there is suffering. And what Paul is trying to say is in Romans 8, 18 through 25, he's saying, hold on to that hope to carry you through the suffering. Look at verse 18, he says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth, not co- worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And that I consider in the Greek that Paul is using is a, one of the root words where we get the word logic. So he's not saying I, kind of this wishful thinking and a hoping thing. He's saying that there's an actual rational, logical thought that he's actually compared all the pros and cons. He's thought this through and he says, I consider that nothing, this present suffering is worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. With faith and logical reason, he looks to the future to define his present. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, isn't that, kind of, isn't that the kind of life we all want? And if you are still searching after God, isn't that kind of hope appealing to you? That no matter what you're going through, you can say none of this is compared to the glory of the future world, the future life that God has for us. That's the good news that he gives us, that there's a better future for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for us to get through this process, there's three points we want to talk about today. Two hurdles and one revelation. The first hurdle is that uh, there's a lie we hope is true. A lie we hope is true. The second hurdle we have to cross is the truth we actually hope is a lie. The truth we hope is a lie. And finally, the third of revelation is that there's hope we find in suffering. The hope we find in suffering. So first... The lie we hope is true. The lie we hope is true. Most recently, uh, my wife and I, Aaron, we flew. Uh, something we haven't done in a long time, but this is not something I say, well, it's a big status I have, but for the past four or five years, it's really easy to do is you can get TSA pre-check. How many of you guys have TSA pre-check, right? Game changer when you fly. Uh, it's really convenient to do so. But because of a mix-up, my wife's ticket was just a regular uh, TSA process. So being the good husband, I'm like, well, we'll just stay together. Uh, so I went through the regular uh, TSA process, which I haven't done in a very long time. 
And I didn't realize how hard it is to go through that line. You have to take your shoes off. You have to take your electronics out. You have to take your liquids out. Something I haven't done in a while. And I couldn't help think uh, how inconvenient it was to go through this regular process when there's a fast lane with the TSA pre-check. If you don't have it, highly recommend it if you fly. It is a very uh, nice perk. But what it did remind me of is an article I read recently in the New York Times called The Tyranny of convenience, the tyranny of convenience. And, the, and what they say in that article is that convenience is the most underestimated and least understood force in our world today, especially in developed nations of the 21st century. Convenience has emerged as the most powerful force shaping our individual lives and our economies. In the article, Tyranny of Convenience, says convenience has emerged as the most powerful force that's shaping our individual lives and our economies. Evan Williams, the co-founder of Twitter, added that convenience decides everything. Convenience seems to make our decisions for us, trumping what we like to imagine is our preferred option. See, I prefer to brew my own coffee, but, you know, those Keurig pods are just so easy to use. Convenience becomes something we do. We hardly ever choose the other option. Easy is better. Easiest is best. And I share this story. Uh, just even yesterday, I was coming back from swim practice with my nine-year-old. And we were talking about swimming, and he talked about the option of what if you could swim uh, using virtual reality? You wear the goggles, you could experience that whole swimming process. And I asked him, like, well, would, you can't say, like, swimming in, in water is so much better than just a virtual option. And he says, yeah, but the virtual option is so much easier. Which kind of fuels the point we're talking about, that convenience trumps a lot of our options, especially a preferred future. And once in that mindset, convenience has the ability to make other options unthinkable. Once you have used a washing machine, the idea of laundering your own clothes, even if it's cheaper, seems ludicrous. Now, if you've streamed television, the idea of actually waiting to watch a television program at a certain time and going through all the commercials, that seems uh, antiquated. See, after all these things, we it's actually hard to go against convenience in our culture, to not use a phone, to not use Google, and it actually takes a special kind of dedication to actually do those things. Uh, and it can be actually seen as eccentric, right? Someone who uh, uses vinyl or who actually does coffee the long and arduous way. It becomes a fanatic way to do it, something on the margins. And to think that powerful force that's shaping our lives and our society and our economies and our culture to think it hasn't infiltrated our faith, it'd be ignorant of us not to address it. See, the lie that modern Christianity has perpetuated, maybe even have infiltrated, is this, that Christianity is convenient. So Christianity is just easier. To be a Christian, your life is just better. Christianity is convenient. But we know, if we look at the scriptures, and we all actually saw with our Spiritualize that Christianity has nothing to do with convenience. It's not convenient to take up your cross daily and follow him. It's not convenient to love your enemies, especially when you don't agree with them. It's not convenient to come to church or participate with church when it's so hectic and there's so many things on our schedule. It's not convenient to practice patience when everything around you is driving you crazy. And it's not convenient to practice sitting with the Lord when there's pain and suffering weighing on your heart. See, yet everything in us hope that what's true, 
Everything in us hopes that life was a little more convenient. Everything hopes that Christianity, our faith, was a little more convenient. And more importantly, we start living our lives dictated by that hope. See, I believe that we wouldn't be in here, all of us in this room, unless we were serious about either getting to know who God is or wanting to live as people of God who desperately want to seek him and have this intimate encounter with him and to be shaped and transformed by him to love our neighbors and our world uh, as he has loved us. I think there's a deep desire in us for those things, but it comes into conflicts when we also want to keep our lives as comfortable as possible. See, what are the decisions in our faith that we can take that's going to have the least impact in how my comfortable, controlled life will go? And if we get honest with ourselves, it can lead to the second hurdle we have to cross. The first hurdle that we have to say and kill is that lie that Christianity is convenient. But the second hurdle we have to get through is this, the truth we hope is a lie. Verse 17, last week we talked about this. this if indeed we share with, it, share with him in his sufferings in order that we may also share with him in his glory, which leads to our text that was read a little bit earlier, verse 19 through 22. And let's read it again. It says this. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Well, what Paul is saying here is this, that there's two kind of points that lead to the same truth. Two points he's bringing to light to reveal the same truth that's true for all of us. The first is that the physical world we live in the world we interact with is subjected to frustration and decay. The world we live in is subjected to frustration and decay. Modern science, technology, everything we do just delays those things. But frustration and decay is what comes of this physical world. The second thing he talks about is this, that there's a waiting for liberation. As it's moving to frustration and decay, there's actually a waiting for those who are in Christ Jesus for liberation. He talks about being freed from bondage of those things towards this free life. And the second illustration vivid imagery gives is childbirth. And he gives this image of childbirth as much as anything that happens in childbirth in 21st century. Imagine what it was like in the first century life for him to say that creation itself is groaning towards childbirth. And I'll say this as a parent of four children, and I'm not comparing what I went through with what my wife went through in that labor room. That is not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand me. But that's in an intense room, right? It was, it was, it was a lot for me. I told Aaron, I, was, I don't think I could do this again. It was that intense. But there's nothing compared to the intensity of what happens in that room to the euphoria that happens when you welcome that new child, right? And that's what Paul is saying, that creation itself is groaning, that there's pain and suffering, but it's leading to something. As the world is going to frustration and decay, there's a birth of new life. There's this freedom that comes. And this singular truth that leads to what Paul is trying to say. That keep your eye on the whole perspective, but this, that when we're in this physical world, this is the truth that he's trying to say. That the road to redemption and restoration is marked with suffering. The road to redemption and restoration is marked with suffering. As we look forward to that new birth, as we look for that freedom, 
the road in which that happens, the means in which that happens is marked with suffering. The bright and beautiful future we have in Jesus Christ is made into reality through suffering. First Philippians 1.29 says this, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer with him. First Peter 4.12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal or the suffering of persecution that has come to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, will suffer. The road to redemption and restoration, this new birth, the road to redemption and restoration is marked with suffering in, through, and with Jesus Christ. There is no other truth in scripture I think we try to avoid and we hope secretly is a lie. See, who would choose suffering when another option is available to them? Who would choose the cancer diagnosis when you could sidestep it easily? Who would choose to lose a loved one when you could stay with them longer? Who would choose to sit in isolation and depression and anger and frustration when you could easily opt out of it? I don't think anyone in all of human history except one person would choose that path. And it's our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christ himself didn't take the easy way, but chose the road of suffering. He chose to lay all things down. He chose to live a life of sweat, blood, and tears. He chose a life filled with rejection and betrayal and grief, a life of suffering to bring many sons and daughters to glory, to liberate from the bondage of frustration and decay toward a new life, a new freedom, only through him. See, everything in us wants that truth, that the Christian life is marked with suffering. But take hope in Jesus who has redeemed that, saying he has suffered, he has taken all things, so he knows what you walk through. He knows the struggles you have. And he says, look to me and I will walk with you. Two hurdles we've crossed, so where does that leave us? And it's this, that we find hope in the suffering. We find hope in the suffering. Verses 23 to 25 in Romans 8 says this, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. In this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they have already had? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here Paul is using uh, difficult language to communicate some truths to us about suffering and hope and redemption. And it can seem a little confusing because last week we talked about this idea of adoption, that we were adopted as sons and daughters, a great uh, illustrations and video and sermon about what that means. But here it says that we're eagerly awaiting this thing to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but we're looking into the future for it to happen to us, the redemption of our bodies, adoption and assumption, and it can be a little confusing. And so how does this all make sense? Many of us and most first century Jews at the time, when they thought through the timeline, when they thought through life, they kind of looked at it this way. This is not controversial, right? Things happen in this linear fashion. There's this age and the age to come. 
there's this age and the age to come and things flow linearly. And when this happens, well, how is this happening where we're adopted, but we're still waiting? But what theologians would say and how Paul is arguing and even Jesus is that it looks more like this. That there's this age that we live in that is subject to frustration and decay and pain and suffering. And then there's the age to come, this bright and beautiful future where there are no more tears. And then we have this place in the middle called the already and not yet. The already and not yet. And you see this language over and over in scripture and Paul tries to communicate in this way. He says that you're already adopted as sons and daughters but not yet adopted sons and daughters as we see in Romans already redeemed in Christ but not yet redeemed in Ephesians already sanctified in Christ but not yet sanctified in Christ in 1 Thessalonians and already raised with Christ but not yet raised with Christ in 1 Corinthians and there's this gap and this theological tension between the age that is and the age that will come and that we live in the middle And Jesus himself spoke in this way in the gospel. He says, the kingdom of God is here. Other ways he says, in other places he says, the kingdom of God is coming. That we live in the already and the not yet. And in that theological tension, we're still waiting for the fullest expression of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And in tension towards the future, this age to come, that we've all been exposed to, that we know of. And that's why Paul says, I consider all present sufferings, uh, nothing compared to the glory that's revealed in us. As we look to the future and we live in the now, what we have in the gap is suffering. But not suffering as a byproduct, but rather as a means in which our bright and beautiful future in Christ becomes fully realized in our present, here as it is in heaven. And if if that's kind of confu- spinning your head and it's kind of confusing, I want to simplify it by saying this, that when you suffer, when you feel betrayed, when you feel lonely, when you feel like w- the world is falling apart, when you're suffering, it is a means in which God's glory and mission is being accomplished to bring that future age when all things are made right into reality, into this present age. And you get this bigger perspective that Paul is trying to pain that all this present suffering none of it is compared to the future glory and as a believer in Jesus my responsibility is to make that future reality future glory into a reality in our current context and that suffering is a means in which that is accomplished to to share in that Timothy says it this way the mission of God in suffering. He says this, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. You know, one of the privileges I have as a pastor and working with some great men and women all around the world is we hear stories of people coming to faith from all different backgrounds, all different uh, religions and all different places in life. And rarely is a story is that, hey, someone just kind of beat me in a theological argument and now I've decided to follow Jesus. That rarely ever happens. What I hear stories of is people sitting with people in the lowest points in life. That when someone has suffered deeply 
and has someone else who has suffered deeply and is a believer and they sit with each other when they talk and mourn about losing a loved one, when they talk about missing out on something, when they talk about the brokenness they experience in life, in that moment, you have this moment of grace and that suffering is redeemed into the mission of loving our neighbors. That in that beautiful moment, it becomes the means in which the future reality where there's peace and harmony and people will come to faith in Jesus and made into a current reality, even in the midst of suffering. David Pallison says this in his, in his book, that when you've passed through your own fiery trials and found God to be true of what he says, you have real help to offer. You have firsthand experience both of a sustaining grace and his purposeful design. He has kept you through pain. He has reshaped you more into his image. What you're experiencing from God, you can give away in increasing measure to others. So you're learning both the tenderness and the clarity necessary to help sanctify another person's deepest distress, the tenderness and clarity to meet someone in their deepest distress. So often we think that uh, someone else's job to do uh, the work of God, someone's better trained, better equipped, they know how to evangelize better, they know how to communicate things better, they're better with people. You know, I get awkward when I talk to people. I'm really more of an introvert And we disqualify ourselves into entering into that mission together. But the only means in which God wants to bring restoration and justice and redemption to our broken world is through this grace working in us. And what I mean is that the world is frustrated. The world is falling apart. None of this should surprise us, brothers and sisters who are in Christ Jesus. But we, the people of God, We don't minimize the suffering we personally have experienced. We don't put it aside and say, well, it's just nothing. What we say is that it can be redeemed and purposeful to bring that future reality into the world we live in today. That God can use our story with our neighbors and communities to redeem us towards that bright and beautiful future. See, God promises us this. A day when there will be no more tears, no more wars, no more heartache or pain. And the closing chapter of our lives is not filled with mystery or suspense and no longer filled with those tears and heartache, but one of redeemed justice and wholeness. But we can find all the pain and brokenness and suffering that we personally experience as a means in which God's glory is magnified by making the future age, the age to come, into a reality in our world today that we can be part of that mission of bringing redemption and restoration through our suffering. That's exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to us today in this section, that all suffering, all the pain and loss is for God's glory and his mission, as long as those who are in Christ Jesus can can rely more and more deeply in his grace. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the glory of your name and the goodness of who you are. Lord, through all things, all the bumps and bruises of life, all the lows that we go through, Lord, that you are with us, walking with us, and calling us to a deeper life with you. Lord, not minimizing our pain, but redeeming our pain for your future glory. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.